season 10. Welcome to season 10 and this is episode 5. Black Table Talk is a subdivision of Daring Dialogues and I'm your host Shante Charles. During this time we talk about all things that pertain to black people. We are currently getting ready to begin a book by the title Black Women, Black Love. We'll be reading aloud from this book for the coming weeks. Every Tuesday, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we're going to start tonight. Along with this book, we'll also be continuing our reading from Race After Technology by Ruha Benjamin, as well as the book Push Out. So these are our reading selections So if you're interested in joining us in these read-alouds and in these read-alongs, those are the books again, um, Push Out, Race After Technology, and the book that we're going to be starting tonight entitled Black Women, Black Love. Our programs will run anywhere between 30 to 45 minutes, and I'm going to start by reading from those books. So again, tonight we're reading from Black Women, Black Love by Diane M. Stewart. As a black woman, as an African-American woman, ADOS, FBA, whichever one uh, you go by, depending on what camp you're in these days, um, I feel that this book is a very necessary book to cover um, because of the things that have been said about black women, who we love, who we don't love, who we should be loving, um, all of those different things. I felt like um, this was a book that was necessary to start a conversation with, um, to look not just at what's happening presently with Black women, um, Black love, but also to look at the historical context in which we have found ourselves in that informs the present conversation. So, again, if you'd like to make sure that you have a copy of the book, the book is entitled Black Women, Black Love, America's War on African-American Marriage. So this is, again, where we're starting our reading from tonight. And if you have one of those little green cameras, that means that you have the ability to come on screen and have a discussion with me. So as I get into tonight's reading, again, I'm going to stop around 6.15, and that way we'll have some opportunity for people who may want to come on and talk about this subject and talk about what we have read in our covering on tonight. So we're starting with the introduction. Marriage is a pervasive and compelling institution, a subject our culture cannot seem to relinquish. From top grossing films and popular sitcoms to novels, self-help tools, and scholarly studies, the subject of marriage occupies a central place in American life. The archetypal image of standing before the wedding altar with one perfect soulmate remains irresistible for many, and associations of love, romance, and delight with modern Western marriage continues to captivate. 
Our relationship worlds revolve within the universe of love and marriage. Yet, it's no secret that marriage is not what it used to be in America. Across the last century, marriage rates declined and divorce rates increased by record numbers, regardless of racial or ethnic background. The beginning of the 21st century is already showing similar patterns, but the data pertaining to rates of marriage among black women register a distinctive social reality. The 2010 census, for example, revealed that in 2009, 71% of black women in America were unmarried. Of that group, 71% of black women between the ages of 25 and 29 and 54% between the ages of 30 and 34 had never been married. These statistics correspond with the decline in marriage among African Americans, which has been happening since 1960. In that year, 61% of African Americans over the age of 17 were married, compared to 74% of whites and 72% of Hispanics. By 2010, those percentages had dropped to 30% for African Americans, 55% for whites, and 47% for Hispanics. Data for the year 2012 continues to show striking disparities. Among 40 to 44-year-old women, 88% of white women, 83% of Hispanic or Latinx women, and only 62% of black women had married at least once. Most heterosexual black women in America today, whether parenting offspring or not, are single by circumstance, not by choice. The trope of the single black mother is much more salient in America's shared imagination than that of the single black father. And it's often coupled with a different image of the black male counterpart, the so-called absent black father. Among policy efforts aimed at single parent families, the focus on parenting and marriage eclipses the larger problem of absent black male partners for black women in general. And despite these decades-long effort to encourage marriage among single parents, unresolved issues remain. Perceiving that marriage, especially when healthy, tenders a range of transgenerational rewards for families, for communities, and the wider American society, the federal government launched a series of initiatives designed to increase the rates of marriage among American citizens in general. The relevant legislation and guidelines for accessing federal resources have always emphasized special incentives for, quote, low-income women who often assume primary child-rearing responsibilities and at-risk couples inclusive of high school adolescents. The African-American Healthy Marriage Initiative, which was a branch of George W. Bush's Healthy Marriage Initiative, actually targeted black cohabiting couples and single parents specifically and empowered varied organizations and entities to provide culturally competent healthy marriage programs. Under President Obama's administration, these incentives were reinforced and expanded to encompass official healthy marriage and responsible fatherhood programs with the objection of closing the marriage gap and reversing the trend of declension Donald Trump put his own spin on past efforts when he unveiled in April 2018 an executive order on economic mobility, 
Among his guidelines for public service agencies was the directive to promote marriage as a way of escaping poverty. However, this range of federal initiatives shows that the federal government miscalculated the problem and its causes. The decoded identity of America's low-income mothers, at-risk youth, and irresponsible fathers is disproportionately Black. And for Black women, the group most likely to check never married on a survey box. The strategy's deficiencies are all the more evident. By treating the issue as a moral one that demands solutions aimed at socializing poor, at-risk women to value marriage, policymakers and implementers have actually missed the mark. The trouble is not with Black women failing to value marriage. We do, in fact, value marriage. It is the shrinking demographic of those whom Black women want to marry. Instead, federal resources and policy efforts should have moved in the direction of ensuring pathways to financial stability and wealth building, strengthening the range of pro-social kinship networks beyond the nuclear family that remain significant to poor Black women, and increasing the available pool of marriageable Black men. During my college days in the 1980s, the author writes, the perceived social fragility of Black men's existence in the United States compelled me and so many of my Black female counterparts to rehearse the statistic that, quote, for every eligible Black man, there are seven eligible Black women. Black women have never had it as good as other American women when it comes to romantic coupling and marriage. In a pivotal scene from the movie Sleepless in Seattle, a male news reporter reminds his female colleagues, quote, it is easier to be killed by a terrorist after the age of 40 than it is to get married. Immediately, Meg Ryan's character chimes in. That is not true. That statistic is not true. However, Rosie O'Donnell's character, the unmarried spinster, apparently knocking on the door of 40, wins the audience's sympathy as she mutters, it's not true, but it feels true. Watching the scene for the first time, I became acutely aware that the social and the emotional distance between Becky and me was measured by the fact that what felt true about dating and marriage, options for white women, actually was true about the available pool of black men. If you did not know this, black men experience the highest mortality, unemployment, and incarceration rates in our country. Thus, for black women across the age spectrum, the gross imbalance between their personal and professional readiness for marriage and their black male counterparts' professional readiness or unpreparedness and unavailability could not be more true. In some cases, black women lack dating prospects within their socioeconomic group, and in other cases, they don't have dating prospects at all. Growing up black and navigating my own passage from girlhood to womanhood in North America, I never expected that the social markers of race and gender would count against me so heavily in the arenas of romantic love and marriage. In obvious public arenas of social mobility, educational and professional attainment, I might have expected racism and sexism to play a role. But even love and marriage are not intrinsically private affairs. 
They too confer social goods and privileges and they can also siphon them away. By the time I entered college, I was awakening to some of the challenges that black women were facing when it came to love and marriage, but I remained a bit of a romantic. I had latched on to the love story of my great grandparents whose shared love was so pure that it became my standard for how love should look and feel. Their story stayed with me from girlhood to young womanhood, issuing a confidence that enduring love and marriage would never elude me, even if it had eluded so many black women around me. Reality proved more difficult. I wedded my first husband one month before I began my doctoral studies in my mid-twenties and received my divorce decree one month after I walked across the stage to accept my PhD degree just four years later. The archive of my 30s and early 40s stored additional marriage and divorce certificates, each document a story unto itself of shared hopes and disappointments. For much of my adult life, as far as I could see, no natty of my generation was anywhere to be found in these United States of America. My personal experiences with love and marriage typified another common condition black women who do fall in love and marry know all too well early or serial marital disillusion. But I wasn't yet able to see my experience as something collective shared among many black women in America. It was only while researching the topic of love and marriage among heterosexual African Americans for a new course that I was developing that I was able to connect the dots, the writer says. I began to comprehend not just the gravity of my own and other black women's unfulfilled romantic desires and hopes, for enduring marriage, but also the structural nature of our failure to achieve those desires and hopes. I began a course aptly titled Black Love that addressed the themes related to love in the African-American experience with romantic love making up a small section. However, as I collected materials for the Black Love and Romance unit, I acknowledged that the sources and what they were telling me that black romantic love is deeply entangled with structural power. I developed a different take on the problem. By the end, I could only characterize black women's lack of options for meaningful love and partnership with black men as the nation's most hidden and thus neglected civil rights issue to date. Inspired in part by black students' intensified racial justice activism, which seemed to beg for another reiteration of this course, it allowed me to explore fresh ways of exposing America's most hidden civil rights issue in preparation for a new course. While revisiting, I discovered even more materials indicating how systemic the crisis of an undesired single life is among millions of black women in this nation who either seek love and marriage with black men or whose marriages to black men are in peril and often end in divorce. It was soon evident that more needed to be said on this subject from a different angle. Prevailing authors present the problem as a personal hardship or a byproduct of simply socioeconomic, political, or cultural transitions. But black women, black love is my attempt not only to examine what the numbers and the narratives are telling us about black women's marital status across 400 years, but also to uncover what historical perspective and cultural patterns reveal 
about the forces that have impacted the quality and assets of black women's marriages over these last 400 years. The hidden causes of racial and gender disparity in America's marriage market, the compromising effects upon millions of black women's health and wellness that have yet to be unveiled. Some point to economic and cultural shifts as well as the myriad of social crises afflicting black communities. Things like addiction, under-resourced schools, elevated levels of crime that disproportionately impact the lives of black men and usher them to prison or the grave prematurely at much higher rates than they do black women. Influential as they are, these factors signal recent developments in the four-century domino effect that has dogged black people's efforts to surmount the tangible traumas wrought by America's peculiar heritage of racial slavery. The roots of the marriage dilemmas that single black heterosexual women who desire black male husbands currently face actually lies in the soil of slavery in their ancestors' involuntary presence in these United States. I know, shocking, right? I can imagine that it's difficult for many Americans to digest this claim. Our country's reigning fictions about its practice of racial enslavement and its enduring effects render inaccessible the true underlying causes of black women's marital dilemmas. The average American's conviction that slavery is long in the past and everything experienced in the present is a matter of individual success or failure precludes them from recognizing how racism co-signs and consigns black people to crippling structural disparity, totally beyond their control. Those disparities extend to love and marriage when considering the history of black women in America. Our love odyssey has been interwoven with the nation's political and economic history in ways that no other group can lay claim to. State enforced, forbidden love afflicts black women in the entire black community but most people are oblivious to this fact. We know all too well how ideologies of white supremacy and racism have nurtured batteries of state laws and shared American social norms, prescribing romantic and sexual liaisons across black and white racial lines. In case you did not know, while they are yet working to overturn Roe v. Wade, they're also working the state Texas is also working right now to overturn the Loving versus Virginia decision. The policing and punishing of romantic relationships that transgress the black-white racial boundary are powerful tropes in America's collective consciousness. My own collegiate experience of witnessing the occasional black male classmate suffer serious consequences for dating a white female compelled me to broach the subject with my two younger brothers as each was about to begin their college career. I can remember distinctly warning them against developing any sexual or romantic relationships lest they become accused of sexual assault once the father got wind that their child was dating a black boy. My brother's creamy caramel skin tone and lean lanky build could possibly temper some white fears generated by his six foot three frame but I was apprehensive about my brother, who was also handsome, athletic figure, and phenotypic deep brown skin, 
that looked like a silky mixture of the most delicate chocolate fondue. His shade, my other brother, was an added liability. Even in our present century films, such as Guess Who, Something New, and Loving, they remind us of the historical and contemporary risks surrounding black-white coupling and marriage in America. In our haste to associate forbidden love with the taboo of miscegenation, however, we have overlooked something grave to the African-American experience. Yes, they are working on trying to overturn Roe v. Wade. They are also working on trying to overturn the Oberfell judgment, which was the same sex um, judgment. And they're also working on overturning Loving versus Virginia. Um, So they're not just coming after um, abortion rights. They're actually coming against all forms of rights. So make sure you check that out. Go look up um, Texas Supreme Court and what they're getting ready to over or attempt to overturn. The histories and narratives that fill the pages of this book indicate that we don't have to look beyond the black community to address the issue of forbidden love. Over the centuries, American rituals of racist sexism have meddled with the love lives of far too many black women and men, creating a culture that for all intents and purposes forbids interracial black love. In this book, we deploy the concept of forbidden black love to reference the structures and systems that make pro-social romantic love, coupling and marriage difficult, delayed or impossible for millions of black people in America. We're gonna take you from the era of enslavement to the era of social media. We are going to study the anatomy of forbidden black love and argue that this is a neglected aspect of our American heritage and it's our nation's most unrecognized civil rights issue. From the early 1500s to the mid-1800s, African men and women were brought against their will to America, not for love, but for the labor and profit their bodies could produce. So right from our inception, We must understand we were not brought here for love. We were brought here for labor and for profit. And that has affected our story, our shared ancestral story in this country. Across an epoch of enslavement, even their intimate engagements with each other, whether desired or compulsory, through shadow breeding, through breeding farms. This often amounted to a form of sexual labor and capital that delivered yet more black bodies into bondage. American slavery could function optimally only if in conjunction with other tactics of domination. Its stakeholders strategically disrupted and sometimes even extinguished black love that got in the way of their production. It is not overreaching to say that black love had to steal social, psychological, and physical space to survive the all-consuming pressures of white surveillance and reproductive labor in the slave economy. After slavery, African descendants confronted the paradox 
of being emancipated yet unfree and unprotected in a civil society. Between the formal abolition of slavery in 1865 and the signing of the Voting Rights Act in 1965, they lived under the incessant threat of death and demise because they were black in a nation that colored itself white and authenticated the fabrication of racial difference. This hundred year reign of terror spawned policies and American customs that continued to annul and desecrate black marriage and family life, as well as disappear black men from their partners, their spouses, and loved ones. It provoked several great migrations of millions of African descendants who left the South in search of safer environments and viable economic opportunity that could support black love and black relationships. The same is happening today with a reverse migration of many African Americans moving from the North back to the South for the very same reasons. Safer environments and viable economic opportunities. So we're gonna stop here on tonight. This is just the introduction to uh, black women and black love. As you can see, the author is laying out the case that this is not something that has happened overnight, that the um, scarcity that some people feel, the um, push for us to not love one another that some people feel, that this is a ongoing agenda. It didn't just start yesterday. It didn't just start 10 years ago. It didn't just start 20 years ago but it has its roots from the time we were brought here up into the present day. So again, we'll be reading again from this on next Tuesday. I encourage you, if you're a black woman, to get this book. Black Women, Black Love by Diane M. Stewart. Um, And I'll just give you a little bit of information about her. She is a professor of Religion and African American Studies at Emory University, where she created a course entitled Black Love. She is currently uh, still a professor at Emory University. So, response. If you'd like to give a response to what we have shared on tonight, and you have one of those green cameras, you can... um, Request to join, and I will add you to the screen tonight. All right. It says it's adding. Good evening. Good evening. You actually, I was writing down stuff as you were reading. You actually covered what I was writing down. Great. So I was putting down. Reiterate it then. Yeah. The death rate of black men, both natural and unnatural murders and executions. Uh, The uh, legal system. Mm -hmm. Incarcerating them at a mass number for small things and for trumped up charges mm-hmm. and the fact that 
you also have a system that pays a woman not to have a man in the house. Yeah. See, we're dealing with all those things. And also the fact that this goes back to slavery. Yeah. Because they were not allowed to be married in many cases. You know, so uh, you, you established a system. But now because your system has affected us for over 400 years, you want to look at us. Yeah, it's on, it's on, it is on autopilot and she is going to detail for us the ways in which this system is on autopilot. Because I think a lot of, a lot of times we don't see the, we, when we see from a historical standpoint, we only, most people only focus on the racism part. And I like this book because she's saying beyond racism this has affected how we do relationships, period. This has affected how we see each other. This has affected our ability to love one another. This has affected our ability to um, establish a viable economic future. And and we're not talking about, you know, maybe the 10% that are doing that, but we're looking at the community overall what is happening to the economic viability of our community, Um, what ideas are being pushed into our community that are not being pushed into other ethnic groups that further deteriorate our ability to build strong family and community. Um, What might have been seen as things that were on the fringes that are now being encouraged in our community to become the norm. So I'm looking forward to um, diving into all of these different way, different uh, avenues because I consistently am starting to hear a narrative about black women that as a black woman, I know is not true. And right. But if you are in a echo chamber of people who are consistently telling you what's not true, right? You start to you start to begin to think that that echo chamber is telling you the truth about black women. Right. So right. Not, I, I, it's time to interject some data <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and, and some facts of the women. case. I know we're talking about women now, but it's the same thing with black men. Right. There are many great black men, great husbands, that would be great husbands and great fathers. I know many single black fathers, but you don't hear about them. Right. Because they want to keep pushing that narrative that uh, uh, black men, that they're, they're missing from the home, they don't love their children, they don't want Listen, black men, this is what they don't know, and they're not going to say it, but it's true. Black men would die for their family. Straight up, they'll work themselves to death if it came to it for their families. But the narratives that they've been pushing about black men and black women, some of it has affected black men and black women. Mm-hmm. Because like you said, that echo chamber, we start believing the lies about ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, and then that that's the division tactic. Yes. So I'm, I'm going I'm going to recommend to you. I know you say women, but I'm going to recommend this book to men also. Yeah. Because when we can understand how the system is operating against us, mm-hmm. 
then we can come together and do something about it. Yeah, definitely. Um, black men and black women, I want to make that clear. Black men and black women are welcome to this conversation. Um, the reason I said black women is because there is a, a certain narrative out here now that is encouraging black women to what they call divest from the community. And when they say divest, they're basically saying, we we think that you should give up on black men altogether. There is a certain segment of women right now, many of them not African-American, ironically, um, who are pushing this narrative that African-American men are not worth believing in that they're not worth pursuing a relationship with that um other groups of men are more worthy of your time and attention than black men are and so i feel like it's important for us to understand our own history with black men Rather than listening to a voice from the outside trying to tell you how to feel about the counterpart that God gave you. See, my mentality is that if you're not one of us, (laughs) you can't tell us about us. Well, I'm telling you right now, there are a lot of people buying into people who are not one of us telling us how we should feel about each other. And we're going to address that narrative, but we're going to do it through facts and data. Right. Now, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to speak briefly about the financial part because we hit this last week about reparations. Mm-hmm. Okay. Number, uh, they've said, experts, if, if we were given reparations, we wouldn't have had as many deaths from COVID as we had. If we were given reparations our economy would not have suffered. See? And you wouldn't have had to be giving out stimulus checks and throwing money at big companies and into the stock market to make it look good. See? Yep. Because what we spend as a as the largest group of consumers in this country, it, it, it would have started from the bottom and went to the top. But that but they still want to do that trickle down, we give it to the wealthy that's not gonna spend money. And maybe you might get a penny out of $200 billion. See, so, you know, the system is, that system is broken. It's not going to work because the wealthy are greedy, get greedy. Don't get me wrong, we still, we got some. One of my favorite, I like to talk about a Mark Cuban. Okay. I like the dawn of the Dallas Mavericks. The man, when the pandemic was, was when they did the lockdown, this man paid his employees their salary. Mm-hmm. They didn't have to collect on it He paid them their salaries. This man is the one man that said, the first one that I heard said, the money should have been given to the to the uh, uh, small businesses and the low income people versus the big businesses. Yeah. Because he understands that the low income people are the ones that spend money and it keeps the economy going. Yeah. So I wanna this man is a multi-million of something. I want to I want to go back to you know even the the economic piece. I want to make sure that I get here um, the article for those of you who may be looking for this article that we're talking about. It came out February sixteenth, twenty twenty one. 
and it was featured on CNN.com. You can actually look it up. Their Harvard study said that reparations for slavery could have reduced COVID-19 transmission and deaths in the U.S. Had they just done right by African-Americans. Isn't that interesting? But rather than do right by African-Americans, they chose to yet ignore their responsibility to repair. And because they they continue to ignore that responsibility to repair, it seems like this country just cannot get out of this pandemic. I wonder why. Hmm. Perhaps you should consider addressing the repair that you should have done. In other words, do first things first. But rather than do first things first and, and address that repair, they're skipping over that repair and they're trying to address everybody else and everything else. And we know how that works in our own life. <laughs> we, we know logically how that works in our own life when we skip over the necessary and try to address other things. So um, I want to thank you for coming on. We're actually getting ready to close this conversation. Um, I did see Lady Barbara, I did see you try to get on, but your camera or something, it was not allowing your camera to let you join. Um, But we are going to continue this conversation invite people to to this conversation to join in invite them to check out this book if you can't afford it libraries are back open now i'm quite sure somebody's library has got this book in there it is a recent release um check your local library for it so that you can join the conversation we'll be back here next tuesday at 6 p.m eastern standard time remember light is the most daring opposition to darkness So continue to go out and be what? Light. Go out and be light. Thank you for taking time to listen to and share this conversation. Take care, everyone, and good night.